Welcome to the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream. This is where we talk about the public health prevention topics of the day. This is a new podcast, and we're beginning with a short series regarding tobacco taxes. This is our second podcast on the issue. If you missed the first one, and you have some time, go back and listen to Dr. Daniel Morris and Jill Hudson, our host, introduce the subject and tell you about the five things you should know regarding tobacco taxes. You'll hear those repeated later in this episode as well. In this episode and coming up in the future ones, we have some of the foremost tobacco tax experts in the country. We're really excited to bring them to you. So now let's go to our host, Jill Hudson, and meet our guest for today, Mark Meany. All right. I'm here with Mark Meany, Senior Staff Attorney at the Public Health Law Center um, at Mitchell Hamlin Law School. Really excited about today's conversation. In our podcast series, uh, we've been talking about five things that we think everyone should know about tobacco taxes. And today, we're going to talk more in depth about a couple of those things that fall kind of under the umbrella of what makes a good tobacco tax. And I can't think of anyone better than Mark Meany to help us think through some of the types of things that people need to be aware of uh, when when they're making tax policy or when they're deciding whether or not to support tax policy. So, but before we get into all that, um, hi, Mark. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> thanks for asking. Great. Well, th- yeah, thanks for inviting me to be here. And Mark, you are joining us today from the great state of Minnesota, uh, from hi. Mitchell Hamlin Law School. Um, uh, the public health law center there. Tell us, let's start with a little bit about the, the public health law center. What do you guys do? What's, what's that all about? Sure. So I work for the Tobacco Control Legal Consortium, which is a program of the public health law center. And as you mentioned, we are located at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. We were founded about almost 20 years ago to work on, um, initially just, um, commercial tobacco policies, um, and we have expanded since then. Now we do a lot of work also in health eating and active living spheres as well. And we provide, we're, we're a nonprofit, a 501c3 organization, and we provide free legal technical assistance to state and local, local health departments, to advocacy organizations, to governmental attorneys, you know, to almost anybody um, who has questions about tobacco control policies. And our primary bread and butter activity is um, to provide legal research and analysis. We do a lot of policy development. So we try to help people um, develop policies that are evidence-based and that will achieve their policy goals. And by that, I mean um, that they're written in a way that they will um, do what folks want them to do and that they will do them in a way that is less likely to result in litigation. And we know that we in the tobacco control world operate in a very litigious environment. And so because that's not always possible that when policies are drafted, we hope that they're at least, if there is litigation, that they're going to be, um, that they are in the best position to survive any legal challenge. We provide, we develop a lot of publications. We have one of the largest um, libraries of tobacco, re- tobacco control resources in the country. We do a lot of trainings. We are traveling around the country, um, frequently providing trainings on a whole, the whole scope of 
tobacco control policies. What we don't do is we don't do any direct client representation, so we are not courtroom lawyers. We do, though, follow what's happening in litigation around the country, so we keep abreast of where there have been lawsuits and what that, you know, what effects those might have for um, other jurisdictions. We get involved in litigation in, in um, primarily in um, providing some support, and most of that comes in the form of an amicus brief or a friend of the court brief. So if there's a case that has, we think is going to have some national significance, um, we will provide um, really the public health perspective on it so that we ensure that the court has that perspective. Um, the other thing that we don't do is we don't do any lobbying. So while we come at all of our work through a strong public health lens and through an equity lens, um, we don't do any direct advocacy. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned 20 years ago, I don't know if I've ever told you this, um, uh, possibly I have because, um, I remember I was at this conference about 20 years ago and, uh, your boss, one of your bosses, I think he's still there. Do you work with a guy named Doug Blanky? I do. Doug is our executive director and has been since our inception. Yeah. <laughs> I remember him and another attorney from California standing up and saying, hey, we're going to start these tobacco control legal centers. And I thought at the time, that's going to be really cool. That's going to be really helpful. I had no idea at the time how helpful the work that your center does would be. Um, and so I just want I, I to put that out there um, to you and to our listeners. This is... Um, a real uh, treat to have Mark on here today, and um, these these the work that the tobacco control um, legal consortium lawyers do is just phenomenal, and has really really moved tobacco control further down the line to where more uh, more people are protected from. Uh, dangers of tobacco, and more lives are saved. So again, thanks for being with us here today. Um, Mark, well, thank you, you. Thank you for that. We really appreciate that. Uh, and that's, that's, it's, it's wonderful to hear um, that <laughs> our work is being seen and, and has had an effect. So thank you, Jill. Well, you're welcome. Um, so you work on tobacco taxes all over the country and look at a, and by work on, you, you look at a lot and, and maybe provide some some um, technical assistance on framing tobacco taxes. Uh, we've talked a little bit on this podcast about the importance of tobacco taxes. Um, from your perspective, when you are looking at a tax proposal, let's say um, a state uh, wants you to give them a little technical assistance on a tobacco tax proposal. What kinds of things are you looking for other than like state-specific things? Like I know you guys look at how it kind of fits in with that state's tax code, et cetera. But in, in a general sense, what kind of things are you guys looking for? Well, we look for, uh, you know, we try to try to look at the whole picture. So, um, which products are, are going to be subject to the tax? It's, you know, we, we really look for broad-based uh, tax policies that don't specifically include or exclude certain products. Um, we want to ensure that tax is, is going to be high enough to be significant. We know that the effects are um, most pronounced in terms of reduced tobacco use when there is a, you know, a, a significant increase in the tax and then one that's not phased in that comes in all at once. Um, 
We also look for tax parity, especially among non-cigarette tobacco products, so taxing them at the same rate. Where the revenues are going to go from the taxation tax, the tax, we know that typically taxes, increased taxes are going to result in increased revenue for the state. And so it is certainly a, um, we're, we're, we're strong proponents of, um, segmenting some of that increased revenue for, um, state and local tobacco control programs so that they can further evidence-based tobacco control policies, which we know have a significant return on investment. And then the other piece, and I think this has become more important over the last couple of years is the administrative feasibility. And I, and, and by that, I, I think with the increase in interest in taxing e-cigarettes, I think there has been, um, there's a little bit of a change in how these function. So making sure that, you know, if it can fit in the existing, existing tax code that it does, um, otherwise how, you know, how can we come up with a system that will allow, you know, the whole scope of products to be taxed. So a lot of different factors. Uh, have to come together to make what you would consider to be a good or potentially effective tobacco tax. Let's talk about, let's let's kind of unpack some of these. So you said you were looking at the overall sort of um, which products are taxed and how high they are taxed. What, what, what matters in that discussion? Well, we, you know, we want to make sure that, that, that there aren't, you know, that we're looking in part because of the, um, Tremendous change in the, you know, the tobacco industry and 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 the, the emerging products to make sure that we're looking forward to, to that all products are going to be captured. Um, we know that study after study has shown that that taxes are the most effective way to reduce tobacco use. Um, so ensuring that we have the broad base of products included, everything from the you know combustible cigarettes to um, smokeless. And uh, um, e-cigarettes, and you know, and, and whatever else will be coming down the pike um, is extremely important. But also that they're going to be taxed at a rate that is significant, um, that's going to increase the you know the economic barrier to entry. So um, you know the, the studies have shown I think a ten percent increase in cigarette prices has been shown to reduce consumption by three to five percent. And we know that that youth and young adult smokers um, are more two to three times more sensitive to price changes. So we want to make sure that the um, that the impact is significant. We don't know yet what the effects are um, directly on um, for for e-cigarettes, but I think that we don't have any reason to believe that the results are going to be appreciably different. So again, just making sure that that we have a a, a broad definition of tobacco products so that they're all included in the and you know in the in the tax and um, that the tax rate is high enough to uh, to make a make a difference. Yeah, because the more expensive the product is, the less likely especially youth, but really all consumers are to purchase the product. I mean, it sort of exactly. boils down to that super simple. It is, and it's I think it it it, it is that simple and I think that there aren't a lot of um uh, public health policies and tobacco control policies specifically that have, you know, that you can really boil down to the essence quite like that. And I think, you know, that's been shown by, you know, study after study, economists have, have shown that it's, it's been um, something that has been espoused by the World Health Organization where they say it's, you know, it's, it's the, um, the simplest way to make a big difference is to increase the tobacco taxes. Um, so um, we know that, that it has a direct effect on, on use, especially among kids where it's even more, 
um, the, the, the result, the, the um, reduction is even more pronounced. So uh, we were talking about this a little bit in our last podcast. Um, why is it important to, to tax all the products? I mean, technically, combustible cigarettes are the most dangerous, are still the most dangerous product, uh, probably one of the most dangerous products on the market <laughs> in, in the world. Um, why, why is it in, why are you worried about the other ones? Shouldn't we maybe just only focus on what's the most harmful? Uh, well, I think that that's, there's a, there's kind of two parts to that question. I think one is, um, the, the question of whether all the products should be taxed. And then the second part I think is whether they should be taxed at the same rate, whether there should be what we call parity taxation um, among products. The first one is that we know that even the products that are less harmful are still harmful products. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 they are addictive products. Um, you know, I think e-cigarettes is the one that probably gets the, the most press, um, you know, as people espousing their, um, potential benefits as a cessation product. And, and, um, you know, there are avenues through the FDA where products can be, um, you know, they can go through the process and be determined to be a cessation product. Um, and so none have done that yet. So there aren't any that have been, um, been proven to be cessation products through that process. So our view is that you know, all these are, are, um, potentially addictive products. Um, and so we, we want to, especially for kids, we want to reduce the likelihood that we're going to have a next generation of tobacco users. There's also more evidence coming out recently that are showing that with this epidemic of youth e-cigarette use, that more kids are um, transitioning to combustible cigarettes. And so we want to make sure that we don't. We already have um, a huge, such a tremendous, almost 80% increase in high school use of e-cigarettes between 2017 and 2018. We want to make sure that that's not going to result in, you know, one long-term nicotine use at all, but but more more importantly, um, combustible um, tobacco use. Yeah. So uh, in one way, right. and I think I, I I think I said this on the on the last podcast. So if you increase the price of combustible cigarettes and at the same time don't increase the price of e-cigarettes or spit tobacco, you could make those products even more attractive, especially to youth, because now they appear less expensive. Is that well? They in fact are less expensive. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's true. <laughs> and I yeah, and I think from our, our our perspective, you know, we still are we approach this from the precautionary principle, and that basically means that we know that there is some harm to any of these products, and so um, we would prefer uh, that you know the burden of proof really should be on those who are espousing these as, as less harmful or harmless products to, to, to prove that scientifically. And because these products, you know, again, I, I think it's, it's, we're looking at a whole, I think often when we talk about e-cigarettes, we have one product in mind, but we're looking at a whole um, scope of different products, which have different constituents and, and, and different harm levels. And we don't know, we really don't have a way of, of um, determining exactly what the harm is of each of these different products. And so, um, you know, we, kind of stand back and say, I think in, until we really know that these are less harmful products and that they aren't going to result in, especially kids, you know, getting addicted to one and then and progressing on to other products, um, it makes policy sense from our perspective to tax them at the same rate. Yeah, that's so interesting. And uh, uh, also what you uh, pointed out earlier that 
tremendous increase in uh, youth e-cigarette use. You know, it's it feels unlikely to me. I mean, the kids are starting with e-cigarettes. They're not picking up e-cigarettes in order to smoke less combustible cigarettes. They're starting with e-cigarettes. And then what I hear you saying is that they're starting with e-cigarettes and then potentially moving on to combustible cigarettes and then signed up for a lifetime of addiction or potentially signed up for a lifetime of addiction, which is, it, it almost feels a little like, like, like a flashback to many, many years ago I mean, you and I have both been working in tobacco control a long time. I think we, I I remember us having discussions early on when e-cigarettes really started to pick up market momentum and uh, the the feeling of, oh my gosh, here we are again. (laughs) Um, uh, After having made so much progress on combustible cigarettes. So what you're saying uh, absolutely rings true to me addicting another generation of our youth um, and allowing that to happen uh, absolutely does not make any sense. And the policy solutions are are so important because, as you've also said, tobacco taxes is uh, tobacco taxes are are one of, if not the best way to reduce youth or predictably reduce youth. Uh, tobacco use. So you talked a little bit also about uh, expenditures from new revenue from tobacco taxes and making sure that some of that money uh, is used in ways that can further reduce tobacco use. Can you tell us a little bit more about policy, policy direction or policy thoughts on that? Sure. Well, we know that... Um Research again. Research has shown that um, the return on investment for tobacco control programs is is extraordinarily high relative to other public health interventions. I mean, I think you, you know the, the CDC has numbers that range from you know five to one up to you know fifty five uh, dollars saved for every dollar spent. So it, it, we we know that um, that it reduces healthcare costs, um, lowers premature death, um, increases. Uh, decreases workforce um, disability. Uh, so, you know, we, we know the effects are significant. And in 2018, I think, states spent only about 3% of what the CDC recommended for state tobacco control programs across the country. Um, so there is a huge opportunity there. Um, and and it's, we, we also know that once um, revenue that's coming into the state is uh, kind of put into the general fund or is earmarked for something else, it's very difficult to, to pull it back and, and, and have it um, focused on tobacco control programs, so it's, that's an important part of any policy on the very on the on the front end when it's when it's being developed. So, why do you think it's hard for states to spend that money on evidence-based tobacco programs? Well, I, I, I mean, I think um, once you know, once it kind of goes into the general fund, I think if it's not if it's not done at the front end, I think it's it's um, it 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 just gets diverted into. You know who knows what else. There's a million other priorities for the state, and I think, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of people's eyes, I, I think that the tobacco epidemic has gotten a little bit more hidden because it's really, unfortunately, it's becoming so much more targeted toward um, certain communities, lower um, 
socioeconomic community is that uh, the tobacco industry has been successfully targeting with its, its marketing strategies uh, uh, communities of color, and it, it's not hitting um, the communities that are, uh, you know, the, the the white upper middle class communities nearly as much as it um, as it used to. And I think the e-cigarette epidemic has really changed that. I think it's it's brought it into the forefront, and a lot more people are are seeing it um, in their high in their kids' high schools. I know mm-hmm. I know I'm seeing it in my own kids' high school. Um, so I think for a while it's been, you know, people just didn't, I think, I think people are probably surprised to hear that tobacco is still killing almost a half a million Americans every single year. And the number of kids that are, are uh, getting addicted every year is still extraordinarily high. So I think, um, I just think it's, it's, um, uh, as smoking rates have declined, I think it, it has kind of moved away from the front burner um, in, in many cases, even though we, we, we know that it's still the single largest cause of preventable uh, premature death in the country. Yeah, I think that's really, um, I, I've thought a little bit about that uh, because I think a lot of times when I'm interacting with policymakers or colleagues who are not in public health, but who are uh, professionals or who have, you know, sort of, uh, a, a lifestyle that where they're not interacting with a lot of smokers, they feel like there aren't that many smokers anymore. And it's true there are fewer smokers, but what what I hear you saying is that a lot of those, there's still way too many smokers and the people have been targeted targeted by the tobacco companies and certain populations have been targeted. But if you're not a member of one of those populations, if you're not um, a member of the African-American community, if you're not a member of the LGBTQ community and you don't have a lot of friends in that community, you might think that no one smokes and, and the problem is solved. Uh, so yeah, yeah, just, uh, I, I appreciate you pointing out that, uh, we're not, we're, we're far from uh, having solved this particular public health scourge. So um, I want to be clear, though, you're, you're advocating for a portion of net revenue or a portion of revenue from tobacco taxes going to tobacco control programs. Not the, not the whole thing, right? Yeah, we don't, we don't, so we don't have any um, you know, clear guidelines on, on what percentage of taxes should go to um, you know where they where they should be should be um, earmarked, but mm-hmm. we just we feel like it's it it just makes good policy sense. We know that the return on investment is significant, um, and that um, states are not currently spending nearly as much as they should on tobacco control policies. So there's just there's a lot of low hanging fruit. Um, so yeah, I mean I think we would say you know a certain a significant portion should go, but no, I'm not saying that. Uh, certainly wouldn't say that 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 the entire Tax, you know, all the all the revenue generated from tobacco taxes um, would necessarily have to go to tobacco control policies. Okay, all right. You guys do a lot of work on tobacco taxes and other policies, and I think you've already explained this really well. But uh, is there anything else like why this particular type of policy is so important to the Public Health Law Center Tobacco Control Legal Consortium? You mean why tax policy is so important mm-hmm. to us? Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, 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 well, I mean, we are a public health organization, and as I work on our commercial tobacco team, so our, our ultimate goal is to, um, you know, to help our partners, who are folks from all around the country, develop the most 
effective, evidence-based, legally viable policies to reduce tobacco use. And we know through study after study after study that uh, tobacco taxes is one of the most, if not the most effective um, policies to reduce tobacco use. Um, And ultimately, that helps to decrease health disparities more generally, which is really another one of our, our primary goals. So yeah, I mean, reducing tobacco use is, is, is really important. It's, it's 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 our mission. It's why we do what we what, what we do. It's what makes us feel you know good about our our work. Um, and again, as I said, I, I think that a lot of times people are not fully aware um, of the effects that tobacco still has on our population. I think that that the half a million number is it, it's really it's really remarkable. I think um, anything that we can do to reduce that number is really important to us, and we know that taxes. Um, and increasing taxes, one way that we, you know, are, are confident will will do that. But we certainly wouldn't say that, you know, taxes in isolation, or you know, that that wouldn't be the the full policy. I think it's it's always, you know, there there are plenty of other good policies as well. But taxes are one that we know um, we know are effective. Yeah, that's a good point. I I feel like one thing we know in uh, tobacco control or public health. Uh, policy prevention is there's there's no magic bullet. There's not one thing. This is a really complex issue, and it requires a, you know a fairly complex solution. Sometimes we call those comprehensive solutions, but I, I I think it's a really good point. You can't you can't just raise taxes and and call it a day and say we've fixed the problem. All right. Well, I have well, one. I that's, that's, sorry, that's yeah. no, one, oh, sorry, that that just ties really, really, I think, really directly in your last last point too. That um, why it's so important to then have some money um, that you know from the tobacco taxes that allows communities to develop policies that are specific to the needs of that community. Yeah. Um, I think that's you know I can't emphasize how how, how important that is to, to you know to maintain that local control. Um, and to, to develop specific policies that um, that are based on on need. Yeah, yeah. So, in our first podcast, we introduced five things that we think everyone should know about tobacco taxes. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through those really. I'm just gonna read the list one 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 time here, and I I'm I'd love your opinion on what we came up with. Like, I want your honest opinion. If we've missed mm-hmm. something here. I, I want your lawyerly advice, not as a client, just some some uh, technical assistance. So, uh, number one, tobacco taxes are popular with the general public, including many smokers. Pretty much the only people, pretty much the only people who don't like tobacco taxes are tobacco companies. Tobacco taxes always raise net revenue, especially when combined with evidence public health prevention programs that can reduce the economic burden of illnesses like cancer, heart disease, and stroke. Tobacco tax parity can be important. Uh, When done correctly, tobacco taxes can reduce tobacco use and prevent youth from starting tobacco use. And finally, tobacco companies will oppose tobacco taxes. They'll spend tremendous amounts of money to buy influence, distort the truth, and confuse the public and policymakers. So those are our five things that we think, you know, uh, everyone should know in order to make informed decisions about supporting uh, tobacco taxes, um, whether that's an individual or a policymaker. Uh, What do you think? How did we do on our five things we think everyone should know? I think these are, I think they're, they're, 
I think they're perfect. Um, of course I, I, they are. I, I, um, <laughs> they, they are. No, I, 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 and I honestly said it because I, I think that you, 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 um, you hit on a variety of notes that I don't think are always, I, I mean, I think number four, you know, that, that, that's really where we are. We want to get to that point. We know that tobacco taxes can reduce um, tobacco use, resulting in better public health. Um, that's, in a nutshell, I think that's, you know, that's, that's a number one, but I think the other, the other, other, um, piece that I, I know I just, uh, you know, I think the, uh, for people to understand that, that while tax is often considered a four letter word in a lot of places, it's not the same, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't translate to tobacco taxes. And we see that over and over again in Minnesota, when we were considering a tobacco tax study showed that two thirds of the state supported them. Um, there were polls recently in Indiana and Kentucky I mean, you know, kind of showing 70% were in favor. And what I think was interesting about those is that in Indiana, there was a slight, um, a slightly higher percentage of Democrats than Republicans supported them. And Kentucky was the opposite, more, more Republicans than Democrats. Mm-hmm. So it's not a partisan issue. It's not based on geography. It's, you know, it, 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 we hold, it holds true in higher tech states like Minnesota and in states where the tobacco is grown, um, and have higher use. So I think that's, that's, Something that I, I think surprises a lot of people. Um, so I, I, I love that one. Um, the, the idea that they always raise net revenue and that can be used for other public health policies that can be used for, um, for, um, increasing that, that level of funding for tobacco control that we know is, is so necessary, um, to decrease the death rate. Um, and I, I also, I just want to skip to number five because I think that is often where we go. And that's as, as lawyers, we were, we're, we're super happy with the litigation that resulted in, um, you know, the discovery of so many of the industry documents. And I think for, for us, um, we often go back to, to, to some of these that in the 1980s, we show showing exactly how, prescient and how forward thinking the industry was in so many areas. But, you know, the, in, in, there was a memo in, in the mid eighties from Philip Morris talking about this is the policy that most alarmed them, increased taxes. They know, um, they know that smoke free laws are extremely important and we know how, um, how effective they have been. But the policy that alarmed them the most was, um, increased taxation as, as they were concerned that it would reduce use. And I think we, you know, often know that the industry is has done a very thorough job of researching um, where their concern should lie. And so um, to us, that really speaks volumes. Yeah. Well, I think the five, the five, you know, the five, um, five things you should know, I think they're, you know, they're all, they're all spot on. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, providing us a little bit more insight into some of those things. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, it's uh, it's just a pleasure to get your insight, and uh, I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about some of those administrative issues with taxation. I can't, I I I would love to talk about that. I'm sure there's some people who would want to hear. Uh, some of our audience would love <laughs> a to smaller hear. Smaller audience, probably, but yeah, no, I would, I, would, I would love to. I really appreciate having a chance to talk. This is this is great, and thank you for for doing this. I think this is really important information, and um, and we you know we know that this will have a significant impact. So I really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Thank you so much. Again, uh, Mark Meany, Senior Staff Attorney at the Public Health Law Center, Tobacco Control Legal Consortium at Mitchell Hamlin Law School. Have a great day. Great. Thank you. It was really great having Mark on the podcast this week. I've worked with him around the country for the past eight years, and he is always fantastic with all of the tobacco programs that he works with. Thank you very much for listening to episode two of Thinking Upstream. 
we are super excited about continuing this short series on tobacco taxes and have some really great guests lined up for our next few shows. Until then, this has been the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream, with your host, Jill Hudson, and today's guest, Mark Meany. For more information about Upstream Public Health, please go to upstreampublichealth.com. To join the conversation, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upstreampublichealth.